for taking time out of your um, reading day to come and to be a part of this seminar on anxiety. I know it's a very timely topic any time of year, but especially this time of year. Um, and so we're excited that Ashton's mom, Leanne Dorr, has come to be a part of this. And so it's actually really cool because I was telling her that a couple of years ago, I had an idea for something like this. I thought it would be so cool if we could have somebody come talk about anxiety to our college ministry, but didn't really know who could do that, and the idea just kind of, you know, went to the wayside. And um, it's really cool that uh, Leanne and I met at the IF gathering uh, that the women's ministry and the college ministry and student ministry hosted in, back in March. And as we had coffee and got to know each other afterwards, um, and she was just sharing that she you know, felt called to just kind of help out with college ministry in some way. And I said, well, what are you thinking? And she said, well, I think it would be cool to do a seminar on anxiety. And it was like, oh, dream fulfilled. And so um, we're so excited that she's here. So um, you may not know that her original background is in chemical engineering. And so she uh, graduated from USC, right? USC in chemical engineering, worked for Westinghouse for a few years before God called her into counseling through a very cool story that you should ask her about sometime. Um, and then got her degree in biblical counseling from CIU and is currently at Lake Murray Counseling Center out in Irmo. How long have you been there? 21 years. 21 years. So um, I hope you have something to take notes with because this is going to be super practical and helpful um, for you. And I guarantee there's somebody in your life that needs to hear this information too. So I just want to challenge you to even think about as you're listening, who can you take this information to as well? So, all right. Um, I'm going to actually open us in a word of prayer. Is that okay? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just pray that you would uh, just allow your peace to descend upon this place today. Lord, I know that um, there is much... Uh, just nervousness, uh, perhaps even anxiety in the hearts of these students as they are preparing for exams and final projects, um, graduation for some. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on this week, and I know it's hectic, and it's a lot of emotions swirling around. And Lord, we just pray that um, in these next moments, Lord, that you would help us to focus on um, what you would have to teach us through Leanne this afternoon. Lord, I pray that you would provide us all with um, practical tools, um, with truth that we can use, um, Lord, to um, live for you in a way that models um, peace, that models uh, trust, um, and models that you are the Lord of our lives, and that you are the one in control, and that we can trust you. So God, we thank you for Leanne and for her taking time to share with us this afternoon. We just pray that you would speak through her today, um, and for all things to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be with all of you guys today, so thank you for showing up, and I'm assuming that the fact that you're here means you know a little something about anxiety, right? Yeah, so I wanted to start with a couple of questions. Um, how many of you have ever experienced anxiety? Okay. How many of you are really, really familiar with it? Some? Okay. I would raise my hand with that, right? I am good at anxiety. I always have been. I have this personal thinking that we tend to break in one direction or the other. We have people that go toward depression, that would be my son. We have people that go toward anxiety, that would be my daughter, right? And so you see that we are imperfect people in an imperfect world and it's that imperfection is gonna show up somewhere. So what does anxiety feel like to you? 
How do you experience it? Hot flashes. What's that? Hot flashes. Hot flashes, okay. Nausea. Nausea, yeah. High heart rate. Heart rate. Got a weird lightheadedness sometimes, yeah. right? What's that? Candy. Yep. Yeah, so there are lots of different ways that we experience anxiety. So today, um, I want to cover a lot of ground, and we're going to do it in a short period of time. And what I'm going to give you is what I actually give my clients in the office. So um, Rob can make the slides available to you uh, after the fact. And taking notes is always a good idea because it helps you recall things better. But my goal is to, like on the slides, equip you, number one, to understand what anxiety even is. Like, what is going on when we feel anxiety? Two, tools to deal with it when you do feel it, right, when it spikes. I want to give you what you need to settle yourself down. And three, tools to reduce the amount of anxiety you deal with overall, right? You don't have to live with it. You don't have to constantly struggle with anxiety. There are paths through that. So, um, we got until 2 o'clock. I am free afterwards. If you guys have questions, you can ask them in the middle of it, or you can catch me afterward. I'm assuming there will be some. So, what is anxiety? Anxiety is our God-given response to perceived threat. So, if you perceive that there is some kind of threat to you, you are going to feel anxious. That's what it is at the heart. Now, I like to drop back. Well, before I move on, sorry, my slides are, I need to pay attention to them. So anxiety at the heart is it's natural, it's normal, it's a normal part of life, and in and of itself, it's really not a bad thing. When does it become a problem? When we're experiencing it too frequently. When we're experiencing it when we don't really feel like we need to. Like, you know, yes, it's a response to threat, but we look around and think, I don't see any threat, so why am I so in a knot? Why can't I think? Why can't I sleep, right? Why can't I function? Because it's just so heavy. So let's talk about threat, because if it's our God-given response to perceived threat, I think we need to define what threat is. So to me, threat is anything that involves the potential for a loss of something that matters to us. Got it? So anxiety is connected to loss, to your perception of loss. So when you feel like you could lose something that matters, you are going to feel anxiety. Now, if you threaten to come pull the weeds out of my yard, I'm going to say, come on, right? I'll give you snacks. Just come do it. If you threaten to hurt one of my kids, that's a different story because that would matter. There's something of me that's attached to that, right? So when you are feeling anxious, guaranteed, unless it's like a thyroid issue or some reaction to medication or some allergy that you've got going on, and that can cause it, but I really think 98, 99% of what we deal with is coming from a perception of threat. So any questions or comments about that so far? Again, y'all are welcome to talk. Yes? What are some common threats that helps you experience? Well, that's a great question. So I'm going to toss that back to you guys. What are some common threats that you experience or school. perceive? School? What about school? <laughs> that, that's great. What about school, though? 
What's the threat involved with school? Failing. Failing. Exactly. Failing. Not getting the classes you need to graduate. Um, yeah, that's the threat. Brent. Should we value anything? <laughs> I think so. God values things. Right? I'll, I'll leave that up to you personally. I think maybe that's a personal decision, how much you're going to value. Right? Great questions. Anything else? Judgment of others. Oh, yeah. Good job. We fear the judgment of others. Like, if we're not good enough. What are they going to think? That's a big one for college students. Um, finding the right job, finding the right spouse, um, financial concerns, <clears throat> family issues that you got going on in the background. There are a lot of things, right? I saw something I maybe see some people trying to keep with is there's this thread of like I've got so much going on, mm -hmm. right, that I'm just overwhelmed, okay. right, and that gives me kind of a general. Mm -hmm. I don't buy off more I can chew, or I just that the all the threats, right? Maybe they're kind of all low level, but combined. They are additive, and there's this cool little illustration which I can't do because I don't have it right now, but I could call Trip up and say, okay, I'm going to put one little book, like the C.S. Lewis thickness book, in your hand. How long could you hold that up? Well, for a long time. But if I put the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and all of a sudden you've got 30 of them stacked up, they're all small. But what happens? Does it reduce the amount of time you can hold that arm up? Absolutely, because they all fold in together. And y'all, the reality is we live in a crazy world. It is crazy, it is demanding, it is chaotic, it's filled with uncertainty. And uncertainty, just so you know, is probably the biggest source of our anxiety. They did this interesting study that I read about when COVID first started, um, where they published something. And they had, they had studied people who were waiting for a cancer biopsy result. So they were suspected of having cancer, and they were waiting on their biopsy result. And they measured their anxiety level. And they compared that to people who had gotten their result back and they actually had cancer. Guess who was the most anxious? The ones waiting. It says a lot about our fear of the unknown, right? Because when it's unknown, our brain can run wild and create all kinds of scary stories. And we're going to talk in detail about why that translates into anxiety. But that blank slate for us as humans gives us all kinds of creative possibilities. And we don't create the happy endings, we create the terrifying ones. So that's what um, is going on with that. Great questions. So, where is all this originating from in the brain? I think knowledge is power. And so for me, the more I can understand something, the better I feel like I can deal with it. So how many of you have ever heard of the amygdala? Good, lots of hands going up. The amygdala is a little part of the brain. It's actually almond shapes, two almond shaped structures. And I learned that amygdala is the Greek word for almond. So that's kind of cool. Your little trivia bit there. So two little almond-shaped structures that function as our security guard. So your amygdala, it's not the frontal lobe, it's separate, it's not the logical, rational part of your brain. But God created it and gave it to you to keep you alive. That's the bottom line. It's going to try at all times to keep you safe. Okay? The amygdala looks in two places. So it's your little security guard, and it's looking around for threat. And it's important to understand where it looks. Number one, it looks at your surroundings. So it is scanning the environment around you 
for threat. Now, how does it do that? It doesn't have eyes that it saw them. So it's monitoring your sensory input. So the things coming in through your eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and skin, it's attending to. And as soon as it decides there's danger in any of those places, it flips on your body's switches for escape. So with me? So you've got a security guard that's looking around you for danger. Now, how would it define danger? Any idea? Based on prior experience. So your brain contains a file of pretty much every painful, hurtful, difficult thing that you've ever personally experienced or learned about and seen others people or other people experience, okay? So unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that little file's sitting right there and it's all stored away. So let's say hypothetically you went through this horrible breakup and your ex drove a red pathfinder. And you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see a red pathfinder. What's gonna happen? Your heart rate's gonna go, right? You're gonna feel that anxiety spike before you've even had time to process it, right? Your amygdala has seen it, has compared it, because the amygdala works on comparison, on association. So in that scenario, the red pathfinder is associated with what? Right, associated with your ex, which is associated with pain, which is threatening, right? So the amygdala sees it instantly before your frontal lobe sometimes has even had a chance to process what just happened. Okay. So the amygdala is not the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe, y'all know this, I mean it's where we do our fine thinking, our logical thinking. So there are mechanisms where the amygdala gets the information, bypasses the frontal lobe, and goes straight to the activation switches. Um, cool little example, so there is something, if I can pull the name of it, it's called um, cortical blindness. So there are people that are blind, they're born seeing, but something's happened, right, and they've lost their, their sight. But their optical nerves fine, their eyes fine, the nerves fine, the signal's going in, but the brain's not processing it. So I am told that you could take somebody with cortical blindness and throw a ball at them and they will move out of the way. How could they do that? Because the amygdala knows. The amygdala understands what that means. The eyes aren't processing and the frontal lobe's not getting that information, but the deep brain is. And it's taking action to keep us safe. So when you are triggered, right, sometimes it's because your amygdala has seen something around you that it associates with danger. And I think this pathway is the one that leads us to feeling the most insane, quite frankly. Because like you spike and you think, I'm losing my mind. There's nothing wrong. Why am I such a wreck? That's what's happening. Right? Guaranteed, somewhere in your environment, there's something that's reminding you of a painful or difficult experience. Does that make sense? So questions about that? Yes, friend? When the amygdala activates, do we have the choice to stop what it does? Uh, no and yes, okay? It, it is very, and I don't like to use the word primitive because like, I don't believe we evolved into what we are today. I think God created us, but it's primitive, it's basic, right? So it's gonna do what it's gonna do, but we can act on it, and we'll talk about that a little deeper into the seminar. It's a great question. Other questions? Yes, Nick. Is that like use it temporary thing, or like a long-term, like a anxiety, use it like go back to like the analog, like the car thing? Like, is that 
It depends, right? It depends on what we do with the trigger and how we handle it. And we'll get there and talk about like how we do that. For some people, it can turn into almost like a phobia, right? If it really locks in deeply into the brain, you know, one negative experience can take root and become a lifelong struggle. For others, they can go through severe trauma, but because they processed it in a particular way, not even necessarily meaning to, it doesn't take that root. And so they're able to move past it. Right, so good questions. It depends on the individual. Any other questions? Y'all are good. Yeah, so do you think like a phobia is kind of like an unwanted addiction? In a way, it's like a mental addiction, right? It's a like mental... something you can get rid of, but... You can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's like a mental addiction to this particular thing. To thinking about it. Phobias are very real, and, and the definition of them is that's an intense, irrational fear that you know is irrational. You know it doesn't make sense, but you still react deeply to that thing. Yeah. Yes. Do you think that there's um, like people who can kind of rationalize their thinking with like people who can experience trauma and then move past it, mm -hmm. and people who like experience maybe smaller things but can't? Yes. Is there like um, I don't know, can't think of like um, things that make them more I think that's a million dollar question. I don't know that anybody can say for certain what makes some people more resilient. I think the word we're looking for is resilience. Okay. I will tell you that um, some of us, I include myself in that group, absolutely are born with a more reactive amygdala. Um, you know, I said I'm good at anxiety. My mom will tell you that when I was little, she couldn't even vacuum the floor unless I was asleep because, you know, it would like send me all to the roof, right? It was very upsetting. My senses are turned up, so everything smells bigger, seems louder to me than probably the average person. So for me, yeah, my amygdala is more reactive. Some people are less reactive. They say there are 14 at least different traits that you can identify in newborns. So you can walk into a newborn nursery in a hospital and clap your hands really loud. And some of those babies are going to sleep straight through it. And others are going to like hit the ceiling and not settle down for hours. So some of it's genetic, some of it's environmental, you know, what you grew up with, like what kind of support you had in the home, what was modeled for you, how much security and safety you felt versus didn't feel. I mean, that can be a source of that resilience. Um, Myers-Briggs are thinkers and they're feelers. You know, some people that are more wired as thinkers can, well, that has its own troubles, but can sometimes navigate things better than a feeler. So there are a lot of factors. I wish I could give you one easy answer, but I mean, we're all very complex and there are all these things that kind of come together to decide how much we're going to struggle with this versus that. Great, great questions. Anything else before we keep going? All right, anxiety is our God-given response to perceived threat. Threat is what we experience when we know that we can lose something that we value, right? Our amygdala is the security guard that's monitoring for threat. The amygdala looks two places. Number one, we've talked about it. It looks at our surroundings, and it's looking for anything that reminds it of past pain or trauma. And when it sees it, it flips on your body's switches for escape. Anybody want to guess the second place it looks? At our thoughts. Yes. Let's see your thoughts. 
So if you play a scary thought, a scary story, a scary scenario through your mind, if you entertain, what if I fail this class? What if this happens, right? Um, they don't like me, I'm such a failure. If you entertain any of those thoughts, your amygdala's gonna see them, and it's going to react and flip on the switches, okay? So two places, your surroundings and your thoughts. It's looking for danger. Now let's talk about what happens when it decides there's danger. And I'll say this to you, our amygdala is constantly on, it's constantly processing, but it's not a very specific, fine security guard. It's very general, and so it very often identifies threats that actually aren't threats, right? It over-responds and flips those switches on. So when activated, I don't know how well you guys can see this, several physical changes take place. So your pupils dilate, your heart rate increases, the strength of your heartbeat can increase, right? the lungs change so that you're actually taking in more oxygen per breath, which can leave you honestly in a state of mild hyperventilation and give you that fuzzy, lightheaded feeling. Okay, you're familiar with that? I know you are. Um, it diverts energy away from the frontal lobe of your brain so you, you're not thinking as clearly anymore. Things, again, fuzzy. It diverts energy away from your digestive system. So what does that lead to? Stomach feels weird, right? Your stomach's in a knot. It doesn't feel good. It hurts. Uh, diverts energy away from your immune system. So over time, you start getting sick under chronic stress. It's kind of nasty, but it relaxes the muscles of your bladder, changes bowels, so you're offloading, bottom line, that excess weight. All of this is preparing you to run. That's all the amygdala is doing, is getting your body ready to escape. It takes every bit of that excess energy and sends it to your arms and legs so that you can get out of there. Ever felt restless, fidgety when you're anxious? That's what that is, right? The amygdala is not fine thinking. It, it, it's not logical. It's not rational. It's just trying to get you out of danger. Because if you're being chased by a bear, you don't need to be digesting a cheeseburger or doing calculus problems or fighting off a cold, right? You need to run. And God has designed our body so every bit of that energy is pulled and focused to get you to safety. Okay? So, Anxiety that you feel. I hope that this sounds familiar, right? What does this sound like? Anxiety. Anxiety is simply our subjective awareness or experience of that physical activation for escape. So you don't have an anxiety problem. Anxiety is not a thing that's trying to get you. It's not like cancer or coronavirus or whatever. It is our subjective sensation awareness of our body's activation for escape. Now, what do you think about that? I want to hear a reaction to you, to that definition. It makes so much sense. Thank you. Yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> well done. <laughs> Wish I could take credit for all this. This is not my original stuff, so. I'll give credit where credit's due, but it's so useful. It's I mean, so, so useful. That's what it looks like. I see 
dealing with that. Like that, they look like they want to run away. Yep. And they're trying to like, why do I want to Sometimes you do run away. Yeah. <laughs> Chemically, what's happening is it's releasing adrenaline and cortisol into your body. Those are two stress hormones, right? Adrenaline, you know what it feels like. You know, you get scared or startled and you feel it increase. But adrenaline has a really short half-life and so our body processes it and breaks it down quickly. And y'all all felt that come on. You get scared and you're like, oh my goodness, and then it settles right down. That's adrenaline. Cortisol is an entirely different beast. Cortisol is a stress hormone that's built up more in, term, in reaction to long-term stress, and it does not go away easily or quickly. And that's why, if I get way too off track, stop me, because my brain tends to just go. That's why if you've been under stress for a long time, okay, and I've had this happen with clients, I've seen it in my own life. If you've been in a really threatening situation, something that had a big loss potential, and you've been in it for months or maybe years, it can resolve, but you don't feel better. You know why you don't feel better? Because your body's still flooded with stress hormones. Just because the situation's over doesn't mean, boom, all the cortisol's gone. It's still there. And God has created our bodies to want everything to make sense, right? So your brain and your body is wired to be on the same page working in sync. So when you're, we know that there's a speed forward mechanism. If I think a scary thought, my body reacts. Turns out there's a feedback mechanism too. That if my body is in a particular state, and my brain sees that, it wants the emotions to match it. It wants it to make sense. So if you're flooded with cortisol, there's a part of your brain saying, okay, something's wrong. I need to explain this. Where is it? And what do we do? We go find something new to worry about to make it make sense. Does that make sense to you guys? You ever caught yourself doing that? Absolutely, I have to. So that's, um, those are some dynamics that we run into with that. So how do we calm the amygdala? That question has been raised. Brent kind of talked about it. There are these moments, and you are all unfortunately familiar with them, where the amygdala literally takes over the frontal lobe. It hijacks, it just takes control. Those are those trigger moments where the anxiety is just taken off. When that happens, talking to yourself logically and rationally is not terribly effective. We don't have a lot of avenues for our frontal lobe to communicate directly to the amygdala in that situation. Well, the amygdala is scanning the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe can't really say stop it. And many of you have tried that, right? Calm down, what is, there's nothing wrong, right? But it doesn't help. It's because the amygdala is off doing its own thing. It's like, nope, danger, I'm gonna, I'm gonna protect. And y'all, follow me here because 
when it happens, the best thing we can do, and I roll my eyes when I first heard this, is breathe and breathe correctly. So let's explain what breathing does for us. If you breathe correctly, and breathing correctly, let's, let's just do it, okay? You'll mind if we do it? This isn't weird. Not, well, you might think it's weird. I don't think it's weird. Okay? <laughs> so I want you to breathe in slowly for four. And before you do it, I want you, because when we're tense, well, I was going to stand by here. When we are anxious, we lock down. Like our body locks down. We, we tense in, right? So before we breathe, I want you to focus your attention on releasing the tension from your rib cage because... Breathing deeply means we want to expand those sacs in our ribcage we call our lungs. So in order to fully expand those sacs, we need to release the muscles here, right? And we need to release our abdominal and our lower back muscles, which is exactly where we hold our tension. So release them. And I want you to take a deep breath in for four counts, and we're going to breathe out very slowly for eight. Okay, I'm going to actually do it with you because it will make me feel better too. Okay, ready? So in. Really stretch your lungs. And then out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Do it again. And then out. Just like a balloon to breathe in, I want you to imagine that you're breathing in the purest, cleanest air in the world. Okay? Out. One, two, four, five, six, seven, eight. So pure, clean air in. And exhale the garbage. Exhale all the stress, all the anxiety, all the tension. One, like a big dark cloud and you're just blowing the worry, the hurt, the fear. You're exhaling out of your body. See it moving away from you further and further. One final time. In. And out. I see y'all on this. That's a good sign. Five, six, seven. What do you feel? Hmm? Do you feel calmer? Some, some people have trouble with it. You know, they're so wired up that even the breathing doesn't really help. <laughs> Not to take a little <laughs> So what what are y'all experiencing? Anything? Feels a little bit better? Good, that's what I was looking for. Right. Why does that help? Okay, there's a physiological reason why that works. So when the amygdala takes over, it flips on what we call the sympathetic nervous system, right? The sympathetic nervous system is what does all the activation. There is a nerve that runs up and down our spine called the vagus nerve. Okay? When you breathe in deeply, you are applying pressure to that vagus nerve. And guess what the vagus nerve does? It flips the switches off. It deactivates. It triggers the parasympathetic nervous system ever heard of anybody that fainted at the sight of blood? Maybe you're that person, right? That's a vasovagal response. It's when the vagus nerve takes over too much and just shuts everything down. <laughs> it's like, nope, we're not doing this. You're out. So breathing, when the amygdala hijacks, 
when you are that, that's runaway anxiety, slow your breathing down is the best thing you could do in that moment. Got it? Questions about that? Yes, sir. So we felt better after that short amount of breathing. <laughs> Does that mean at all times we're on the right side? Yeah, I mean, if we define stress, as I do, um, as anything that places a <laughs> stress is really at the heart, anything that places a demand on us physically. And so as soon as you open your eyes in the morning, the stress starts. Yeah. So we're all un always under some degree of it, for sure. But we can make some mistakes mentally, we're going to get into those, that really heighten it, that really increase it. What I would recommend to you guys is to incorporate that breathing into your regular routine. Don't wait until your amygdala is freaking out, right? If you will stop, if, if we define stress like we talked about, as soon as you wake up, a little graph here, right, it starts to climb. And if we don't do a thing about it, you get further and further into your day, it's 5 p.m., right? Up here is your hypothetical breaking point, right? We all have one, right? Where you burst into tears, you yell at somebody, you eat a gallon of ice cream, I mean, you do something that you wouldn't otherwise do, right? And so if we don't stop and offload our stress, it just accumulates. So much better to stop, offload it, it's gonna start climbing again because it's life, offload it again, and you get to five and you're here, and you've got all this buffer left to absorb the kids having a bad day when you get home or some unexpected project that you forgot about that's due the next day, right? Or a phone call from a friend who's not having a good day. You've got that buffer to handle that because you have offloaded the stress along the way. Make sense? Yes? You may be interested in something that you are, but do you think that some people have like more of a genetic disposition to like having a stronger reaction to like the surroundings and the thoughts? Like some people like that same exact experience, some people react mm -hmm. much, much more strongly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. All right. So calming the amygdala in the moment, we use breathing for longer standing triggers and associations, those fear triggers that we have. Um, the amygdala can be retrained, but we have to expose it to the fear trigger to do it. And so that's something that you more work with a therapist to do. Quite frankly, you can do it on your own. If you were bitten by a dog as a young child and you've always been afraid of dogs, how would we get beyond that fear? You would expose yourself to dogs, not biting ones, you know, sweet ones. <laughs> so we put ourselves in the situation, you activate the fear, but then you teach the amygdala, hey, this time it's different. It's not, it's not happening the same way. And the amygdala can learn and will learn that. So that is one way, and then just, I'm just exposing you to this right now, I'm not doing it for you. Um, good sleep and exercise both have been shown to lower the overall activation level of the amygdala. So we want to take care of the basics. We sleep well, we want to exercise. So we talked about the fact that sometimes the amygdala hijacks and it's looking at our surroundings and it just reacts to that. Our bigger problem, in my opinion, is our thoughts. Okay? What we struggle most with is our thinking. We are really, really good at scary stories. And so we are going to talk about the ABCs of our emotions right now. And I'm going to pass this out, or have Rob, if you wouldn't mind, pass this out. And I want you to flip to the, the back um, page of that handout first. There's a chart.
So what I'm going to teach you again is what I teach the folks that I work with in my counseling sessions. These are the A, B, C's of our emotions. So you got your little table right there. A stands for awareness. This is something that comes into our mental awareness, right? It could be something that's happening in the moment. Um, oops. Uh, it could be a memory that we experience, uh, but we are aware of something. And I would say that most all of you sitting here today are aware that you have exams coming up soon, right? Or you have some final project, or you have some big change that's going to happen over the summer. So everybody's got something a little bit unnerving in their awareness right now. When things come into A, your mental awareness, we experience C, emotional consequences. These are your feelings. And when we're going through this exercise, we want to make sure that we are identifying feelings correctly. Some people say, well, I feel like something bad's going to happen. That's not a feeling. That's a thought. Right? Feelings are basic. Um, angry, hurt, jealous, lonely, afraid, ashamed, sad. Those are the feelings I'm talking about. Okay? So things come into our mental awareness and we experience these emotional consequences and we believe and are taught that A causes C. We talk like that. She hurt my feelings, that made me so mad, that freaked me out, that stressed me out, right? As though the situation was making this happen. But if A automatically causes C, we have a huge problem. Now what is the huge problem that we have if A automatically causes C? What's that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, exactly. Get the catch. Bingo. Yeah, if A automatically causes C, we are at the mercy of our circumstances emotionally. We have zero power. And that is not where we want to be. We do not want to be at the emotional mercy of our circumstances because circumstances are quite often outside of our control, right? So thankfully, there is B. We're going to go back to our B, right? Our B is our beliefs and thoughts about A. It is not, guys, what happens to you that determines what you feel. It is what you think about what happens to you that determines what you feel. What you believe down deep inside about the situation, about yourself, about your circumstances, about God, right? That determines what you're going to feel. Now let's talk just a minute about what beliefs are. So if you've been in a psychology class, and I'm assuming all of you have at some point along the way, you've probably heard the term tabula rasa, right? It's the term they use to describe how we're born. Blank slate. It's Latin for blank slate. So babies are born into this world pretty empty, right? Basically pre-programmed with what they need to eat and survive, but that's it. Right? So everything you now know and believe, everything you know and believe, you have acquired through experience in this broken world with imperfect people, you being one of them, right? So what do you think the chances are that some of our beliefs might be a little skewed? Pretty high, pretty high, right? So because the world is broken, filled with imperfect people, and we are imperfect ourselves, our beliefs can sometimes be faulty. And those thoughts that we have are just surface expressions of our beliefs. So 
thought, I mean, beliefs are down deep inside. We often don't think about what we believe. We've never stopped to pay attention to it. But our thoughts flow from that internal belief system. Now, Albert Ellis was the guy that came up with this ABC model, and he was a flaming atheist, um, pretty vile guy, actually. I saw him in person one time. He used to do shock therapy on the stage of New York City on Friday nights, and you can only imagine. Um, he was like the Howard Stern of therapy, psychotherapy. Um, but as far as I know, he died without ever realizing that he had stumbled on God's truth. Because scripture tells us this exact same thing over and over and over. Um, Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Colossians 3, 2, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Colossians, whoops, did I get it wrong? Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Why do they need to be taken captive? Because they run all over the place, to places they don't need to be. It's like a dog off a leash. It's not a good idea. Not our dogs, at least. Psalm 51.6 says, Behold, you desire truth in our innermost being. And I love this. I mean, y'all, truth is like the most important thing you can have. Like, if you can find it and stand on it, everything else is okay. So what this is really all about is getting truth in here and in here. That's what I do as a therapist. It's like try to help people get to truth and fill their minds with truth. Jesus said this, you will know the truth and truth will make you free. And I've lived 52 years. I've counseled for 21. I have never seen this not be 100% accurate. Truth always brings freedom. Even if it's painful truth, even if it's truth that you don't really like, it's still going to bring freedom. So we want to get to it. So, back to our ABCs. Let's talk about our emotion factory. So when you think a thought, emotion factory, right? I like to simplify things. Yeah. When you think a thought like, I'll never get all this done, I'm going to fail this test, I'm going to end up living under a bridge. Right? And we've thought those thoughts. Right? You have. I know you have. If you say no, you're lying. Um, when you plug that into your emotion factory, the emotion factory is going to produce the feelings that match the thought. Now, here's the thing. It's always turned on. That's why we experience emotions in our dreams, right? It's not connected to the outside world, so it cannot tell reality from fantasy. It doesn't have any way of knowing if what you're plugging into it is true and correct or complete craziness. It's just going to pump out the feelings that match the input all the time. And it's extremely literal, which becomes quite important in ways that nobody's ever told us before. So it is going to react in the most literal possible way to the words we use, whether we really meant it that way or not. So. Questions about anything so far? I don't want to keep pressing on if y'all have questions. Okay. So what we do with this ABC model is we want to use our table and write down our A. So the, the example we have today is you have finals coming up. Okay. Or maybe you're graduating and you don't have a job lined up or you do and you're going to move. And so that would be what you're aware of. Your C is what you're feeling. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling 
uh, guilty about something, you know, I'm feeling sad. So you fill that in. What we ask ourselves next is, okay, what am I thinking about A? And you want to back up and capture those thoughts. That's what we don't do because the, the pain is in the emotion. And so where do we focus? On the pain. Human, right? We were created for Garden of Eden. We were not created to live in this regularly. This is not the way it's meant to be. It's not the way we'll forevermore be, but it's where we are now. I don't think we've ever adjusted to pain. When Adam and Eve fell, when they rebelled, God let the creation break. Romans talks about that, right? Why did he let it break? Because we needed to know we had a problem. And if everything around us was perfect, we would have never come back to God. We don't come to him when things are easy. We just don't. And so God let it break to redeem us, to let us know he had a problem. Pain entered immediately. It's not stopped. But it's foreign to us. Pain is still foreign to us, and we try to make it stop immediately. That's why we focus on the emotion, which is just the end product, right, without backing up and saying, but where's this coming from? And that's why we're not successful in changing our experience, because we're not focusing in the right place. If you want to change what you're feeling and doing, you need to change what you are thinking. And so we come back to our emotion factory. So we identify our thoughts, and we would fill that out. We'll do some examples here shortly. And then we're going to ask three, three rational questions. They're there on your handout. Number one, is what I'm thinking true? Is this literally accurate? Number two, is what I'm thinking helping me reach my goals? And number three, is what I'm thinking helping me feel what I want to feel in this situation? The answer is no, we need to change it. We need to correct the thought. Now, this isn't the power of positive thinking. You're not going to lie to yourself that things are better than they really are, because that's not going to work either. We want truth, right? We want to speak the truth to ourselves about the situation. So let's look at your handout. These are the common mental mistakes. Again, I didn't come up with a list. Let's walk through them. Uh, yeah, we got plenty of time. So, first one, polarized thinking. Things are either black or white, all or nothing. There's no middle ground. So, if I'm not perfect, I'm an absolute failure. Anybody ever like thought like this? All or nothing? Know anybody that has? Yeah. Yeah, we got some hands going up. Absolutely. Now, if I plug that into my emotion factory, if I say, um, if I'm not perfect, I'm a failure, what, what's the emotion factory going to produce? Fear, anxiety, right? That's not going to be good. But is this true? Is it true that if I'm not perfect, I'm a failure? There's an entire range, an infinite number of points between perfection and pathetic. Right? There really is. And just because I don't land here doesn't mean I'm here. That's black and white. And that's the problem of perfection, by the way. I wasn't meaning to address this, but for my perfectionists in the room, but you think about you know, a, a graph, like a, a continuum. Perfect here, and I've got pathetic here. When you don't hit perfect, where does it feel like you are? Here. Right? Imagine the anxiety that comes from living that way, right? Because you intuitively know you're not infallible. So the energy that it takes to hit this consistently every time is unreal. And believing that if I miss this, I'm here, 
is terrifying. So you live in this constant state of threat because to not hit this means this. Y'all can relate to that? Yeah. And I would suggest for my perfectionist in the room, I used to be one at your age, uh, it finally occurred to me that I was doing a really foolish thing with that. Um, mostly because why do we try to be perfect? Because we want people to like us. Right? And so I had this belief that I've got to be perfect for people to like me. And this is totally off topic, but I think it's probably important to you guys. And one day I was sitting in my room and I heard the Lord say, Leanne, how do you feel when you're in the presence of perfect people? So I'll ask you that. How do you feel when you're around the perfect people? Do you feel comfortable? You feel better, right? you feel at ease? No. And it's like ding, 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 ding. God will say, so why in the world, if your goal is connection and relationship and having people like you, why do you think perfection is the way to get there if you don't want to be around perfect people? If it makes you uncomfortable. I'm like, that makes all the sense. And so I was able at that point to say, I'm not abandoning this. This is not helpful to me. I want to replace it with excellence. Perfection is a point. Excellence is an approach. So if I'm going to do what I do with excellence, that leaves me some wiggle room, right? I'm not always going to get it right, but I'll do my best. And instead of being perfect, try being real. Because people like real a whole lot better than they like perfect. So when we're real and we're approachable, you're going to draw people to you. When you're perfect, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, what's he, what's he thinking about me? I mean, I'm probably looking at my shoes. You know, like, they feel judged because you're judging yourself. That, again, completely off topic. That's what I meant. I can like go in different directions. Any questions about that or comments about that? All right. So... Two, overgeneralization. That's taking one little experience and applying it to everything. Right? So uh, if I made one bad grade on a quiz, I'm going to fail this class. That's overgeneralization. It's having one stumble and taking that and applying it broadly. Filtering is interesting. We see what we're expecting to see, and we reject that information that doesn't line up with our existing belief system. So if you don't believe people really like you, you could have people adoring you, but you're going to dismiss it. You're not going to see it, right? You're only going to see what you're expecting to see. So that's filtering. Catastrophizing something that we're all good at. Yeah, Nick? Is that like a confirmation bias, basically? It is. Okay. Yeah, that's another more fancy yeah, phrase. Yeah, exactly. Catastrophizing? Not a word. It is a word in our vocabulary, right? So that is thinking or saying to ourselves something's going to be terrible, awful, horrible, when it's actually only unfortunate. <laughs> so this goes back, guys, to the fact that the emotion factor is really literal. So if I say I'm going to make a C on this test, and that's terrible, okay? Because the emotion factor is literal, terrible is processed as terrible. Now, to me, being trapped in the top floors of the World Trade Center building, September the 11th, 2001, after the planes hit, that's terrible. Those people knew there was no way down. There's fire beneath them. And they were, what, hundreds, thousands of feet off the ground. That qualifies, right? You making a C on a test is not terrible, right? It's unfortunate, it's unpleasant, but it's not terrible. Now, I want you to think to yourself in this moment, if I make a C, that's terrible. I feel, you feel yourself nodding up just thinking that? 
And that's the power of the emotion factor. I just told you to think that. I just chose to think of myself and my stomach's not enough. I'm, I'm not about to take a test. I'm not going to make a scene. I mean, I'm never going to take a test again as far as I know. Don't attend to it, right? But I'm, my body's reacting to the problem because my emotion factory doesn't care that I'm here trying to teach you about anxiety. It's just processing the words I just thought. Okay? So now I want you to change it instead of thinking, that's terrible. I'll make a C, I could make a C, and that's just unfortunate, but it'll be okay. Does that feel different? That's, so again, we're not trying to make ourselves feel fantastic, but if we've got an unfortunate circumstance that we gotta deal with, so we got this much unpleasantness or misery to deal with anyway. If I let my brain go in catastrophic directions, I'm gonna create this big old load of negative emotion that now I also have to process and deal with. So my problem just went from here to here. Now I've got to fight my way through the depression and the anxiety and the angst so I can even focus on fixing my problem. This is the part that we're trying to eliminate or minimize. Right? So if we keep truth in the forefront and we learn about the mental mistakes and train ourselves not to make them, you greatly minimize your emotional distress, even in the face of unpleasant things. Make sense? Okay. Discounting the positive, I think that's self-explanatory. Um, we have great qualities, but we choose not to focus on those. Jumping to conclusions, that's a big one. Um, forming opinions without knowing the facts of the situation. Mind reading, we do that all the time. Somebody walks past, they don't talk to you, oh, she hates me, right? She's mad at me. Y'all, you don't know what somebody's thinking. Half the time, we don't know what we're thinking. You know, how are we gonna know what somebody else is thinking? Right, so we want to really slow that down and not jump to those conclusions um, about other people's thinking. Fortune telling, again, I'm going to fail this test. Do you know you're going to fail the test? No, you actually don't. It's assuming we know the future without actually knowing it. Um, magnification and minimization, it's like making something bigger or smaller than it actually is. Past determining the future is a big one. When people have like, they've had you know, three or four relationships that have gone wrong. And they will conclude, I'm never gonna be happy. I'm never gonna find the right person. That is believing that the past determines the future because something has been a particular way before, assuming it's gonna stay that way. Is there any reason to believe that's true? <coughs> Logically? Bless you. No. And I know I'm blazing through here, so if you got questions, just shoot your hand up. Emotional reasoning is another real, real big problem. This is, this is the error of saying, because I feel it, it must be true. If I feel anxious, there must be danger. No, no, you feel anxious because you're thinking an anxious thought. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's real. Right? This is where emotions get kind of tricky and misleading. Irrational labeling, that's calling somebody by a label, I'm a loser, I'm a failure, he's a jerk. The way the brain processes, like I'm a loser, is though that is all you are. Right? I am blank, the emotion factory gets that and makes emotion based on that being the sum total of you. Again, the emotion factory is not logical, it's not rational. It doesn't operate like your frontal lobe and we need to understand that because that's why these things are errors. If I stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm disgusting, right? Well, I don't think I'm totally disgusting. But what comes out emotionally is going to be that, what matches that. So we make ourselves miserable without realizing what we're doing. These next ones get really close to home, irrational shoulds. How many of you have some strong beliefs about how people should or shouldn't be? And how often does that lead to upset? It's pretty upsetting, right? 
All right, so the way the emotion factory processes that word is like this. If I release my phone, where should it land? On the floor. Why? Gravity, exactly. There is a law of the universe that demands that outcome. That's the correct use of the word should, to our, based on our emotion factory. Now, why God made it that way, I don't know, right? When you use the word should, your brain is looking for the law of the universe. Now, if I let go of my phone and it flies around this room and, and busts out the window, what are we going to do? We're going to freak out. And that's exactly what we do when we use the word should and it doesn't happen. Bingo. Perfect trip. The word should is incredibly upsetting to the emotion factor. Because when you apply it to yourself or somebody else and it's violated, your brain is going to react like the law of the universe was broken. So there are shoulds, and I think there are absolutes. I'm not saying that there aren't. But we use that word to express our ideal wishes for people, our ideal expectations for ourselves or others. And then we're, we wonder why we're miserable, and we're upset, and we're sad, and we're, right? Because we use a word that our emotion factory is processing in an entirely different way than what we intended. That makes sense? Y'all relate to that? Absolutely, right? So how do we fix that? So the part I've, I've gone through without really addressing is the final thing we want to do is to fix these errors. So if I have been telling myself, you know, Ashton should do this for me, and she hasn't, and I'm upset about it, which is not the case, but let's just hypothetically say, right? <laughs> how would I fix that? Instead of Ashton should do this, I wish Ashton would do this. Now notice how that feels. Think to yourself a should, you know. My best friend should always serve me a party on my birthday, whatever. Stomach nodding up. Now flip it to I wish. I wish they would do this. Feel it kind of settling down. And we've, we've lowered our misery reaction. Yes, Renee? Excuse me, change it from a should to a wish. It becomes something that you understand. I need to communicate this. Okay. Should seems like this is understood by all of us. So, so good. Like, oh, I wish you would throw me a birthday party. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe I should communicate that mm -hmm. wish. Because we understand wishes are general. I like it. Desires are more readily communicated than uh, these unwritten rules. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. Kind of comes with that law of the universe thinking. They should just know. Right? Should. They should know. Mm -hmm. People, you know, I can't read your minds. I'm a counselor. I have no idea what you're thinking unless you tell me. I don't. I would just be assuming. And you don't have any idea of what I'm thinking unless I tell you. So set aside that mind reading. For healthy relationships, you've got to communicate. Girls are bad about it. We think guys should just know. <laughs> we are, right? And some guys are probably bad about it too, but girls are really bad about it. They don't. They, I mean, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm not going to say more. Um, I will leave it at they don't know what you're thinking. Right? You have to tell them. Got to move forward before I get into too much trouble here. Um, number 15 is a big one as well. We confuse needs and wants. How often do you use the word, I need this or I need that? All the time, right? Well, guess what happens in the emotion factor when we apply that word? It processes it in terms of life and death, like food, air, water, shelter. 
So to your brain, the word need means this thing is necessary for survival. And if we've declared something necessary for survival and we start realizing we're not going to get it, what do you start feeling? Anxiety. Anxiety. Absolutely. If I say I need him to call me by 5 today, and it's 4.55, 6, 7, 8, there's this low-level panic building in the background. And if you'll pay attention, you'll sense it too. Why? Because I have just told my emotion factory that my survival depends on this thing. There are very few things we need. We need food, air, water, shelter, and some form of human connection, right? To survive. Because I do think we kind of die without that. Um, everything else is a want. You don't need it, you want it. And so the way we fix this, when we catch ourselves thinking, I need this, it's like, no, do you need it or do you just want it? And we change the thought, we correct it and tell ourselves the truth. Um, Next one's a big one too, confusing, choosing or having to or choosing to. I have to go do this. I have to go to this class. I have to take a stupid exam, right? Um, I have to go to work today. Y'all, the only way you ever have to do anything is if somebody comes and physically grabs you and forces you through the motions. Everything else you do is choice. Everything. You chose to be here today, you chose to go to work, you chose to go to school, you chose to be in the relationship you're in, you chose to stay in the relationship you're in. You chose it all. And that's actually really empowering to realize. So we convince ourselves falsely that we have to do things when we don't like our options. So when I don't like my choices, I come to think that I have to do something, right? But everything you do is choice. You can absolutely choose to never go back to class again. You can choose not to go to work. You can choose to never get out of bed again. I mean, you can do that, right? You're choosing. Now, would you? No. I could choose to not ever pick up my phone and see another client. But I'm not going to do that because I care about them and I want the money, right? I have bills to pay. So I'm going to make the choice to do things I don't necessarily want to do because I don't want the consequences. Y'all with me? Okay. So that's that particular mistake. Um, can't stand it is kind of similar to need. If I say, I can't stand this. Who's ever thought, I can't stand this? How do I know that was a lie? Because you're sitting here looking at me today. <laughs> Literal emotion factory. How do you think it processes can't stand? That's, it will be the end of me. I like physically can't endure it. It's not logical or rational. I don't know why God designed it that way, but he did. So we don't want to tell ourselves, I can't stand this. We tell ourselves, I don't like this. This is unpleasant. I don't want to do this, but I can stand it. And again, your misery level comes way down. Magical worry is a huge one. Okay, who's a worrier? Okay. So what are we actually doing when we're worrying? What is worry? In the most basic sense, what are we doing with our time? So lack of trust comes from lack of trust. If I'm worried, if you're looking at me and I'm worrying, what do you think? Nothing. You're not seeing a thing, right? You may see a pained expression on my face, right? You're not seeing me do one thing. I could be sitting here worrying nonstop. And all that's happening is my brain's spinning in this little circle, accomplishing absolutely nothing in the world around me to change my circumstances. Okay. 
worry is the belief that if I put the work into worrying, and work, I mean, worry does take work. I mean, it consumes energy and it consumes time, okay? So it's work. So we feel like by worrying, we're fixing something. But we're not. We're not doing a thing. It's very deceptive. So that's what the whole idea of magical worry is. If, we, if I worry about it enough, I'm protecting myself. It's like, no, you're not. No, I'm not. We're just wasting our time and energy. And a good gut check is like, basically, every day we wake up, you've got 24 hours to spend and a fixed amount of energy to spend. How do you want to use it? And I ask myself, is this really how you want to spend this time and energy right now? Worrying about this thing? The answer is no. I need to redirect my thoughts. Okay. Confusing inability with unwillingness is another big one. I can't do that. I can't talk to that person. I can't address this conflict, right? I can't, I can't. Yes, you can, right? You have the ability, you can speak words, right? As long as you can speak words, you can talk to somebody, right? You may not want to, but that's the mistake we make. Say, I can't do it. It's like, you can do it, you just don't want to do it. You don't want the consequences, okay? So that's that particular error. And final one is a big one for warriors and anxious people, confusing possibility with probability. Because something can happen, we worry about it. But just because it can happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. And the example I use, I have one time in 21 years had somebody say, yeah, I really do worry about that. So like, shoot, I knew it would catch up with me sooner or later. Probably most of you have never worried about an airplane part falling off and squashing you flat. Anybody? Okay, got one? Okay, every now and then there's one that worries about that, right? Most don't. Well, why don't we? Could it happen? Yeah, it could happen. But what's the chances of it happening? Very slim. Right? So there are a lot of things we worry about. A tornado hitting us. Um, Lightning striking your car when you're going 60. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> True confessions, right? Um, those things are possible. But the weird thing is there's an infinite number, probably, of bad possibilities that could happen in a broken world, right? We don't attend to those. So our worries are based on this mistake of confusing possibility with probability just because it could happen. We start living like it's going to happen. Okay. So any questions about any of those mental mistakes? I know we're flying through this, but I at least wanted to give you the information. Um, and I'm totally available to you from here on out if you want to ask questions about any of it. Okay. So considerations for change. Number one, your brain is very plastic. Back in the 80s, we were taught um, that you're born with a fixed number of brain cells once you killed them, they were gone, and so you better take care of it. Okay? We now know that's not true. The brain is amazingly adaptable. Right? Even after severe trauma, it can grow, it can change, it can recover, it can go beyond where it was before the trauma. Right? So your, your brain is extraordinarily plastic. Um, and God has created something almost supernatural in our mind because with my human mind, I can direct my brain. I choose what I'm going to think about, which if you really stop to think about it, it's pretty profound. Right? With my mind, when I make a choice to think something negative, as soon as I make that choice, I literally put protein synthesis into motion. My brain literally goes to work creating a physical pathway to represent that thought. And the longer I think it, the more robust that pathway becomes. And after about 21 days, it locks in and becomes part of my long-term memory. 
And then the more I use it, the more, the more it just like locks in and stays. But I can change it. If with that same line I jump over in this side and I choose a positive thought instead, I set literal protein synthesis into motion. My brain goes to work and it begins building that neural representation, that physical structure. You can see it on brain images. Builds it, right? And the more I use that pathway, the more that locks in. And if I will stay over here for 21 days, this one locks into long-term memory. So you can change your thinking. Now, your brain is going to resist it temporarily, guaranteed. There's something called cognitive emotive dissonance. That is the term for that weird feeling we feel when we try to do something new and different. Okay? And when I go and get in my car, I'm going to drive home on the right-hand side of the road. If I went to London, I'd be driving on the left-hand side. How weird would that feel? I don't know that I'd even do it. I'd be afraid I'd like, kill myself or somebody else, right? It feels so wrong. But would it be wrong? No. It's not wrong. It'd be the right thing to do. It would just be an unusual thing. That's an example of how our brain rejects. And so when we're going through these mental mistakes, and when you start trying to tell yourself, I don't need this, I just want it. There's a part of your brain that's gonna be screaming, oh yes, you do need it, right? And it's gonna reject that thought initially. You need to press through the resistance. The cool thing about it is, is your brain does not care what you're thinking. It's gonna construct the pathway regardless. You don't even have to believe it. You just have to think it. Is the more you think it, the more you set your mind on that truth, the more you set your mind on things above. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, if there's anything virtuous or praiseworthy, think on these things, like what like I'm told to, when our Creator tells us, set your mind here. If you will do it, and you will do it consistently, you will change. Your feelings will change, your thinking will change, your behaviors will change. Okay. So, any questions about that before I address a couple of specific things first? No? Sorry. Can anybody get me a bottle of water? I'm kind of out. I'm thirsty. Just slurped, and that's rude. That would be awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Let's talk panic attacks. Anybody care to share that you ever had a panic attack? Somehow, right? What do they feel like? Like you're dying. Like you're dying, right? Yeah. I think I've had maybe a couple, you know, over the years. Um, they're terrifying. And people think they're having heart attacks. If you haven't had them, you know people who have. You've been around friends that have had panic attacks. So what are they? And I say this to after our common mental mistakes because you now have the tools to understand. So panic attacks are a fear of fear response. And they kind of go like this. Um, the, the theory is that, that our brain can make these catastrophic misinterpretations of normal bodily reactions. <clears throat> so I had a, a lady that had COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, right? And she was having these panic attacks, but it turns out she was having them after she like walked to the mailbox or if she would lift her arms over her head. Well, because of her COPD, walking to the mailbox or lifting her arms over caused a stress on her cardiovascular system, right? It wasn't dangerous, it was just a change. Her brain saw that and said, something's wrong with you, right? So panic attack, the brain sees, it picks up something that's normal, and you think, oh my gosh, something feels wrong, right? As soon as I think that thought, what if something's wrong with me? That goes where? 
into the emotion factory. What does the emotion factory produce in response to that thought? Fear, right? If I think something's wrong with me in the emotion factory, the emotion factory elevates my fear level, okay? Which increases what? What are my list? My heart starts to beat harder, beat faster, start thinking, feeling weird, my amygdala's flicked on switches. Then I think, oh my gosh, there really is something wrong with me. That goes into the emotion factory. What does the emotion factory produce? More fear, more physical reaction, and I think, oh, I'm dying. That goes into the emotion factory. More, 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 more. And before you know it, you're way up here. That's what a panic, panic attack is. There's nothing wrong with you. It's a, it's a loop. We've gotten into a loop of reacting to our own anxiety. And the more you react, the more it increases, and the more it increases, the more you react, and before you know it, you're way up here. The good thing about it is you can't sustain that level long, so it's going to spike, and it's going to start settling back down. Right? You can stay anxious for a while, but you're not going to stay in that panic state for very long because the, the chemicals kind of play out. Questions about that? Yeah, like, <laughs> no, and people, when they, when they have panic attacks, I mean, if you start to understand what's happening, you can take control of it. I'm not dying, I can breathe, right? I'm not having a heart attack, I'm just reacting to my own anxiety. You use your breathing, it's a little harder when you're having a panic attack because you're wanting to hyperventilate, but you can settle it back down. And people that learn this stuff and understand it, they pretty much stop having panic attacks. That's the beauty of all this, is you've taken control of your own emotions, your anxiety, so it's not really happening so much anymore. Okay. Um, some other tools that I personally like and I like to teach people, so I don't have this drawn out, but when we think of our potential anxiety responses, they fall in a continuum from concern to panic. Okay. So there are a lot of things in the world that we can legitimately be concerned about, right? your grades, your health, your future, those are real concerns. So to give them a little bit of mental attention, is not foolish, it's actually probably wise. But what happens is we start at concern, and if we let our anxiety processes start to grow, and you could arrange these words however you want to, but I think we start moving up that scale from concern to worry. Now what's different about concern and worry? the amount of time you spend on it. Concern is just like, okay, that's going on. I can give a nod to it, but I'm not really thinking about it all the time. When I start thinking about it all the time, my concern is turned into worry, so I'm moving up the scale. And if I keep worrying and plugging those scary thoughts into my emotion factory, I'm going to end up being really anxious. And if I let that anxiety grow and it keeps rolling along, I'm going to create flat-out fear. And then the next stage is panic. So we go from concern to worry, anxiety, fear, and panic. Where I often find myself in situations, and I think most of you probably do too if you ever struggle with anxiety, is we go straight to up here, right? Anytime we are aware of some kind of threat potential, we immediately jump, like I'm already in anxious, somewhere between anxiety and fear. Y'all relate to that at all? It's that reactivity of our amygdala. 
And so one of the great things we can ask is, okay, where does this actually belong on the scale? Given the circumstances as they currently are, where does this really belong? And 99% of the time, guess where it's going to belong? Concern. It's just concern. And so I like, this is kind of weird, but picture myself like grabbing the dial and just turning it down. Because the land is just a concern. Settle it down. And that's helpful. Another helpful tool, and we don't have time to build it right now, is what I call a consequence scale. Right? So if we have a scale of 1 to 10, and 1 well, 0 to 10, 0 is no consequence whatsoever. 10 is the worst possible thing we could think of, which, as I've thought about it, is the, the catastrophic, painful death of myself or somebody I love. That's the 10. Everything else is going to fall somewhere in between those points in terms of consequence. So let's say you total your car. Where would you put that on the scale? If zero is nothing and 10 is the painful, catastrophic death, excruciatingly painful death of somebody you know and love, or you, where does totaling your car? You didn't get hurt, you just totaled your car. Six. Six, depending on where we are financially. It could be a six for some, it could be a little lower for some. Yeah, depends. You, you own the car and you've got to replace it, right? Okay, let's say it's a six. Total loss house fire. Yeah, right? That's pretty big. We might put that at an eight. It's recoverable. I mean, nobody died, right? You lost everything you own, nobody died. Maybe eight, seven, eight. Cancer diagnosis, you know, we're getting on up there. Um, you break your leg and you're in a cast for the whole semester. Three, okay? Now, yeah, if you're, if you're a basketball player and you're gonna lose your scholarship, but basically, yeah. Do you see what we're doing? So we're building our scale, and if, if you are good at anxiety, I would encourage you to go home and build a scale for yourself. And then once we've got that scale down, when something pops up, like you just made a C on a project and you're not going to make the A in the class you wanted, guess what we ask ourselves? Where does that fall on this scale? Is that worse than breaking my leg and being in a cast the whole semester? Is this worse than totaling my car? Most of the time we're going to find nope. Nope, this is kind of that one or two range. I'm reacting like it's all a nine or 10. That's where we get ourselves to. Everything's 10, but having that scale in mind gives us the ability to step back and ask ourselves, where does this really belong? And then adjust to it. Um, final thing I guess I wanted to talk about with anxiety is this thing that I firmly believe we do. We in our culture, equate stress with productivity. The more we have to get done, the more stressed out we believe we need to be internally to accomplish it, right? And we hear that, no pain, no gain. Um, it's not true. It's not true. Uh, there is a stress versus productivity curve, which I don't have with me, but again, if you go back to your little graph, it's my engineer coming out, I like graphs, it looks like a bell curve. So when your stress level is really, really low, think hammock on the back porch, you're not getting much done, right? As that stress level starts to increase, your productivity increases to a point. But beyond that, as that stress level goes beyond that point, we start getting into amygdala territory. And what happens when the amygdala kicks in? Energy's away from the frontal lobe. We're not thinking as clearly, right? We're not focused. Productivity is gonna fall off. It is a lie that you have to be ultra stressed out to get lots of stuff done. Um, when I grew up, I called my mom 
I'll show you people were coming over and Ashley's probably seen this, she's like frantically moving around the house, you know. And I caught myself doing the same thing. And one day, thankfully, it occurred to me, I'm like, you know what? I can only scrub toilets so quickly. I can only wipe countertops so quickly. This internal state I'm in is not translating into productivity on the outside. It's not making it any better, it's just making me miserable. Right? And so, I, I catch myself doing the same thing now. I'm like, okay, Leanne, the tasks are gonna get done. The question is, how do you wanna feel while you're doing them? Do you wanna feel calm and at peace, or do you wanna feel miserable? Because that stress level that we've come to believe is necessary is not helpful at all. So comments, questions about anything? Yes. That's a really good question. It's a little bit harder, wouldn't you? You know, I think just because if you say just breathe or it's going to be okay, people can get upset with you. You know, you validate you're I'm here. It's going to be okay. I think it's fine. You know, and encourage them to just try to slow down their breathing. Um, focus on things other than their anxiety. Like if you get their mind off of that, like let's go think about something positive. Think about bunny rabbits. I mean, legitimately, they may get mad, but that's the truth. When we distract ourselves. We get out of that anxiety. It's a great question. Other comments, questions? I think, like, if someone say if somebody doesn't uh, jump in, in, in a concern, like, I think that's helpful for me to think through how somebody handles stress, right? Like, if they handle and say, okay, right, that they don't jump immediately panic, I think, I could definitely hear somebody that, is our, that struggles with this and say, well, it's like, is there something wrong with me versus like somebody who doesn't do that and say wrong with me. Like, hey, a person maybe that does do that, they have learned to do that, mm -hmm. not like, I'm yeah. just, you know, they're, they're, they're somehow better than you. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with anybody, and that's the big point. I mean, like I've said to you personally, I am good at anxiety. I, my brain kind of naturally wants to go there. I was born that way, apparently. I mean, there is a genetic component. Um, I more type A personality, right? But that's okay. It served me well, I mean, in a lot of ways. It's not all bad. You know, I've achieved a lot of things as a result of that drivenness, but it's like I don't want it controlling me. And so with every strength you've got, you've got associated weaknesses. The people that are best at anxiety tend to be really intelligent people. I mean, the smarter you are, the more your brain is going to be active and the more trouble it can get itself into, quite frankly. Right? So it's not the weak that have panic attacks. It's usually the strong people that are pushing themselves and driving themselves hard. Absolutely, yeah. So when we have those, I mean, for one, the disorders are man-made categories, right? So there's no blood test for them. Um, and that's important to keep in mind. Clinicians have just tried to group different sets of struggles. Any anxiety disorder is ultimately about our attempt to control things that we feel out of control of. So OCD. It's this loop of the more anxious I feel, I feel like, you know, we convince ourselves that if they do these things, I'll be safe. Eating disorders are similar. Eating disorders are always about control, right? I, can, if I, control, I can't control everything else, but if I can control my body, then I'll feel safe. OCD, we're not trying to control our body necessarily. 
although there are forms that focus on the body, we're more trying to control whether the doors are locked or how things are arranged in a drawer. And it's just an expression of our fear of being out of control. Yeah. Like, so do you think that you're talking earlier about how like certain things will like trigger our anxiety response, like things that remind us of pain or like any sort of like perceived threat, like can those same things like trigger like OCD habits? Yes. So think, if you think, I, if I say I triggers anxiety, you're exactly right. That anxiety may come out as OCD, it may come out as eating disorder tendencies, it may come out in a different way, yeah. We have our own preferred flavors and expressions. Yeah. These are great questions, y'all. Anything else? Yes, Renee? I don't think we fight against just the, the culture honor to be stressed out, being freaked out, and you know, we have these, these, we always are just habitual catchphrases, yeah. you know, that it's like, I don't know what else to say, so, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm stressed. You know, it's, mm-hmm. just, it's our, it's You're right. becomes such a default position that I think it almost makes it harder because it's almost like we're anxious to not be anxious because then mm-hmm. we're going to be perceived as weird. Like, mm-hmm. why aren't you stressed about this in class? Why aren't you? To me, it's about recognizing that it's a cultural wave. I mean, it's like understanding that this is a distortion. It's that stress versus productivity thing. It is very American. I mean, it's very cultural, but it's not biblical. I mean, God rested on the seventh day. God, who spoke the universe into existence over six days, rested and enjoyed. And made a real big deal about the nation of Israel doing the same thing. They got in a whole lot of trouble for a whole lot of years for not resting and honoring the Sabbath. I'm not saying we should honor the Sabbath per se. That's a different discussion. But God never meant for us to push ourselves. And actually, the way you guys are living and that I live has only been known to humanity for the last hundred years since the invention of the light bulb. Okay, and that's real. So for four, 6,000 years of human history, when the sun went down, if they didn't have oil lamps, activity stopped, it slowed. I mean, you can only do so much by lamplight. And so they went to bed and they rested. But with that little invention of the light bulb, what happened? Days got extended for 24 hours. Now we can stay up around the clock. And then you get these, right? And not only can I stay up around the clock, I could literally, literally be connected around the world to anybody I want to 24 hours a day bombarded by information, bombarded by news, bombarded by data and stimulation. You think humanity's adapted to that in just 100 years? Heck no, right? And we wonder why we're so tired and we're so anxious and we're so depressed. We weren't designed for this, y'all. It's not the way God meant for us to live. Would that be, I mean, this is kind of the handling of the stress. Uh, I've seen it in my life. You know, whatever it is, I'm looking at this really matter. It's um, internet, books, social media, whatever. Mm. It's like this just information just stresses me out. Right. Like in, in your parlance. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm having, because I have to, the more information I have, the more I have to process, the more I have to make sure my thinking is correct in the mm-hmm. information that I'm processing. I've, I've cut myself off from a lot. I mean, especially as we're going through the election and all the political stuff and COVID. I mean, I was pretty much glued, Ashley can tell you. 
it's like, and she could also tell you this, it's not good for me. You know, I fall into my head very easily. Um, and then it's just like, everything feels scary and threatening and there's like, you know, danger around every corner and, you know, we're all gonna die tomorrow. And it's just no way to live. And I just, I made a decision and I went and unfollowed like 90% of the people on Twitter that I followed. I really did. And I feel so much better. And I highly recommend it, right? We weren't meant to know this much. We weren't meant to be bombarded with this level of information this fast. Back up 100 years ago, how, how much did they have to deal with that was new to them? And how quickly did they have to respond to it? There wasn't a lot. With the information age, um, it is a sign of the times, I'll tell you that. The Bible talks about it. Like in the last days, people will run to and fro. I mean, knowledge will increase. Like God predicted it. He said it would look like this right before Jesus came back and we're there. And we're there in every other way too, but we're there in that way because we're just constant. Your brain isn't meant to do that. And so you step away from social media or at least greatly reduce it, you're going to feel a whole lot better. Brent? Yes, it can be. Um, like I said, anxieties are God-given response to perceived threat. If I am hiking on the edge of a cliff, I want a little bit of anxiety because the anxiety is going to alert me to danger and it's going to up my reactivity, my awareness. So it's good. It becomes a problem when it's out of control, right? Which is most of the time for most of us. So in most cases, yes, it has become a spiritual issue for us. And that's why I like doing this. As Christians, you're told we'll be anxious for nothing. And we're like, okay, that sounds good. And then we fail at it 24 hours a day and we feel like miserable Christians. What I like about this is that it tells us how to do that, right? Yes, anxiety and worries, ultimately a lack of trust in God, but like the Bible doesn't give us every bit of information. Like, you don't go to a dentist who was trained by reading his Bible. I mean, you go to a dentist who was trained by discoveries that we've made through science that are useful to help us. Right? And so there's all kinds of truth in the world that doesn't happen to be recorded in Scripture. And that's this, you know, cognitive therapy stuff is one of those things where people have figured out this is how your brain actually works. When we take that information, we can use it to take every thought captive. We can use it to um, be anxious for nothing. Yes? And my second question is that because we don't exist in the flesh, we go like principalities and spiritual issues. Yeah. Is it, is it a polarized way of thinking if you know that everything is a struggle between good or evil? Is that polarized thinking? Uh, no, but because there are some black and whites. That's a great question. I mean, that that's truth, right? That's not polarized. I mean, it's true that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but we have God's kingdom and we have the enemy kingdom. And that is a black and white, right? Um, you are either a follower of Jesus Christ saved by his blood or you're not. That's a black or white. Jesus is the only way to God. That's a black or white. So there are absolutes. But the problem comes in, Brent, when we make things black and white that shouldn't be. I feel like this is, uh, it can be both cases, but I guess in the terms of a scale, would you say that anxiety and depression is more so temptation or sin? 
Is it temptation or is it sin? Because he says, do not be anxious. Yeah. That's a command. Mm-hmm. He says, trust in me. Mm-hmm. It's a lack of trust. I think ultimately, yeah, you know, my thinking is the, the, this whole total depravity thing, right? So I am in the flesh. Like, we were born rebellious. We were born spiritually dead. When I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was made in that moment spiritually alive. He placed his spirit in me. But he didn't change this. I'm still stuck in this fleshly body, and I will be until he comes back for me through death or coming, right? And so as long as I'm in this fleshly body, everything I do will be contaminated by some level of sin. That doesn't let us off the hook. But it just says, yeah, there's sin behind everything we do. Brent? You quoted a scripture earlier that said we have a renewing of our mind. So there is going to be a point in our life where we do not deal with anxiety. I well, I mean, maybe, I don't think we could ever get there fully, Brent. I mean, I think that those are the goals. But because we are trapped in this fleshly, physical body that has fallen, um, and Paul talks about it, you know, the good that I do, I don't want to do. We're not going to be set free completely until Jesus comes back for us. That's just our reality. I didn't choose it to be that way. God in his wisdom did. And there's actually a verse that addresses that that I find very comforting and encouraging. So the Apostle Paul wrote, for we've been given this treasure in earthen vessels. Anybody familiar with the verse? Okay. What's he saying? That's not the whole verse. I'm going to stop there. We've been given this treasure of the new life, right? In what? earthen vessels. He he put it in the same old fallen flesh and gosh that's frustrating sometimes you know. If there was a button on this table that said sinless perfection I'd slap it so hard it'd make my head hurt. I mean hand hurt. Right? I would. I would. I don't want to struggle any more than you want to struggle. But God in his sovereignty gave us the treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power would be his and not our own. Y'all, humans are made to worship. And if God had perfected Nick or Ashton or Rob or Tripp, guess who they'd be worshiping? You. Nobody needs to be worshiping me. So God left us to struggle with sin because in his grand redemptive plan, people, when good comes out of my life, People look like, that's not normal. That's, that's God. And that's what they need to be thinking, right? That's the answer to why you struggle. That's the big picture. And that's why, not that it excuses your sin, okay? Not that it excuses your choices, but why you can rest in God's grace in knowing that he left you in the battle on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Right, but as I set my mind on things above my thoughts and my emotions, actually, I go where those things go. Exactly. Often, way in a literal way, because if it didn't in a literal way, it wouldn't be mm-hmm. as strong and as helpful and as enjoyable as it is. Like it's, it feels good to be kind. It feels good. Yes. To it feels good um, to have self-control. Mm-hmm. You know, I really, really need to eat ice cream. But I didn't, and I showed that I, that's, that doesn't, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Good, good, yes. Exactly right. 
So final word, I mean, I haven't touched on depression, but I wanted to very, very briefly. Um, this is a big oversimplification probably, but I think of depression as depletion. Anxiety is a state of high burn. We're burning through our energy really fast. And if you've ever had a panic attack or you know, a moment of intense anxiety, how do you feel afterwards? Exhausted. It, it burns through a whole bunch of fuel. Depression is when you are burned out. There's not much left, right? And so you look at your to-do list and you're like, I can't. Because you've got nothing left, it feels like, right? So when we are depleted, we need to fill the tank back up. And depression can also, and often is, due to a lot of cognitive mistakes, it's never gonna get better, I'm such a loser, nobody likes me, right? We plug those depressive, sad kinds of thoughts, hopeless kinds of thoughts into the emotion factory, we're gonna get that emotion, okay? But for a lot of us, depression actually comes from depletion. We just wear ourselves out and there's nothing left. How do you fix that? Sleep, right? Good sleep. Uh, your brain replenishes neurotransmitters while you're asleep at night. Um, dopamine, the feel-good one, is the, the production peaks at midnight, but you need to actually have been asleep for a couple hours to get that full blast. So if you're not going to sleep until 1 or 2 in the morning, you're not getting it. Right? Getting a much reduced, you know, replenishing of your happy neurotransmitters. How are you eating? You know, are you eating healthy foods? Are you giving your body the fuel that it needs to keep up the pace? Are you exercising? And the community is a huge one. Are you isolating? When we get depressed, what do we want to do? Pull away. Don't have the energy to deal with people. That's the worst thing you could do, right? Yes, step away temporarily, but don't disengage. So when we end up depressed, we need to drop back to the basics. Focus on basic self-care until the tanks fill back up. That's all I've got um, for my slides. Do you guys have any other questions? I've got time to, to hang out and address them if you want. I know, I told you. I hope it wasn't too much. Only had the one shot at giving you this stuff. So uh, I've emailed the slides to Rob. Um, if you want them just as kind of a, a memory jog, he can email them to you or hand them out, whatever you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I wanted to do it. I mean, because we struggle. And I really think this should be taught in like fifth grade, the basics. Do you know how much pain it would spare people? Right? But at least I can give it to you now, right? When you're in your like early 20s. And we'll start the lobby to get you into the, <laughs> the gap of the big toothbrush. Oh, there you go. True. Uh, is there a happy medium to all four of these? Because I feel like an overemphasis on like one of them or a dependency can create a problem. Yeah, there is a happy medium and I just think that's personal and takes a little bit of trial and error to find the right combination for yourself. We don't want to worship ourselves. It doesn't need to be our primary goal. We are stewards of our bodies, you know. Our, our physical health is given to us as a gift from God. We need to steward it so we're available for his purposes. Yeah, so that's a great point. Don't worship these things. Just use these things to your advantage. Other questions? Yes. So um, I always considered anxiety and stress to be different things. Are they the same? 
I think they're related. I mean, stress is, again, in the way, and these are just how I define it, right? Stress is anything that places a demand on you. Anxiety, I think, for me, moves from that, okay, I'm stressed, to now I'm anxious. Like, now I'm feeling threatened by my circumstances. So to me, it's like having extra stress, kind of, like, if you have too much stress, you become anxious. I think you can, yeah. Did you use the book analogies that, like, maybe give a metaphor for the difference between that? It's like, what would stress be if anxiety is for the load of things? It's a good, I mean, we have lots of stressors, right? But maybe you've got three tests this week and a job interview and you need to like go to this birthday party for your friend right and there's a lot but I don't necessarily feel threatened by those things I just I know I have a lot to attend to and I may not like that and I may feel kind of tired thinking about it but I'm not feeling threatened by that yet now if I start thinking oh my gosh I'll never get all this done Right. As soon as I think that thought, then that has triggered my emotion factory to start producing some anxiety. So as soon as this to-do list starts to become threatening, then I've moved into the realm of anxiety. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Thank you. It's a great question. I haven't really thought that through, but yeah, I think that's the, the dividing line between stress and anxiety is when it starts to feel threatening, then we've moved to the anxiety realm. Yes. What are some points you think if you're struggling with anxiety that are important to incorporate in prayer? In prayer? Yeah. Uh, that's a fantastic question. I mean, one, we want to confess, right? God, you know I'm struggling with this. Um, and I know my thoughts aren't what they want to be. I, would, I pray that God would reveal to us, like, where the errors are. Okay. I think that's a big one. I, I do believe Satan is a liar. I know he is. And so a lot of those thoughts, and this is a different topic. You know, I'm going to go there. If y'all got five minutes, I'm going to go here because it's so important. So, so important. So um, when I was your age, there were lots of thoughts in my head all the time. You know, it's almost like two voices. There was the me in the moment, and there was this running commentary. Anybody relate? Right? Yeah, lots of you. And it got to be almost paralyzing. I'm losing my mind. I can't even hear myself think it's so loud in there. And I was doing some growing and personal growth, trying to figure out what was you know, up with me at that time. And Tony Evans, who was a pastor out of Dallas, was on the radio at WMHK at the time. And he was preaching a sermon, and he said this, you know, you've only got one brain, and that one brain can only generate one train of thought at a time, which is true. You can't think about two things at once. So if there's a second voice, there's someone in there with you. And I'm like, that makes all the sense in the world. So the question becomes, who is it? If there's somebody in there with me, I have two options. It's either the Holy Spirit or it's the enemy. And I personally am convinced that we can hear the enemy in our thoughts. I have thought about it, not that I am the end-all be-all of theology, but if we can't hear the enemy, I don't think there's any way he could influence us. How can he, he's a liar. How, how do you lie to somebody? You speak to them, right? So, well, he influences us through other people. Well, how'd they get the idea, right? We can hear the enemy's voice in our head, but he is not going to come and say, Trip, this is Satan. <laughs> 
what's he going to do? He's going to disguise himself as you. He's going to speak to you in your own voice. So that second train of thought that tells you you're worthless, you're never going to be good enough, you shouldn't even try, why, why do you even bother? People don't like you, right? That's not you lots of times. And I'm confident that I've spent all kinds of hours, days, weeks, maybe years, conversing with demons in my own head, not knowing it. Okay, Brent? Okay, so if you know that Satan's speaking to you in your head, how can you know that your own thoughts are your own? It's a good question. Okay. So let, let me drop back first. Um, and I saw another head. Like, were you asking? Yeah. I was wondering, do you think, like, is it healthy or, like, really unhealthy to use that kind of, those voices as, like, motivation to get something done? Like, to either reach that body medium and or, or, like, no, no, I'm serious. Or, like, whatever it is, like, I mean, I, it depends on you, right? I mean, if, if it's working for you, I mean, maybe you can leave him alone. It never worked for me. I mean, it was just attempt to destroy. So before I move to kind of Brent's question, how do we discern? Um, well, let me let me talk about how do we tell if it's God or Satan? Or it, I mean, I don't think we've ever encountered Satan. Actually, Revelation 12 says he's before God's throne, night and day, accusing us. But there are a lot of angels that fell with them, and I think that's what we actually deal with. I'm sure I'm not important enough for him to leave God's throne accusing all of us for okay but there are some black and white things in scripture that absolutely identify where the voice is coming from romans 8 1 there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus god will never condemn you ever so if that voice is ever condemning it is not god conviction and condemnation are two different things and so when i realize that i'm like yeah but god i know you convict so what's the difference i don't want to Accuse the Holy Spirit of being Satan. That seems like a terrible thing to do. But conviction feels very different. Like when you are feeling convicted, it doesn't feel great, but it hurts in a good way, right? Conviction, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ and God confronts you about your sin, you're like, but I want to do better. It, conviction pulls us toward God, right? Because the Spirit's willing. The Spirit's the new man. It wants the right thing. Condemnation crushes the fruit of condemnation makes you want to hide your face from God and everybody else until you get it together, right? So condemnation, if you're experiencing condemnation, it is absolutely enemy fruit. Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion but of peace. So if your thoughts start rolling and getting more and more and more tied up in confusion, like that, that happens when you're trying to have conversation with a demon voice. Like, the more I try to interact with it, like, yeah, but, the more confused I become. So God's not the author of confusion. If your thoughts are leading you to a state of greater and greater confusion, it's the enemy. Okay. And then I'd always bungle this reference. I think it's 2 Timothy 1.7. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. So if that voice is producing great fear, it's the enemy. Right? And what do we do? Don't sit there and take the blows, right? You rebuke him, and I'm Baptist, but you rebuke him out loud in the name of Jesus Christ and take authority over him and tell him, go, don't lie to me anymore, don't speak to me of this again, I rebuke you and send you away in Jesus' name. That's what you do. Right? You take authority over it and you, you tell it to leave. And it will, eventually. Now, the question is, how do we tell the difference between our own thoughts and the second voice? To me, and I can't say this is true for you, I can tell. I mean, I can tell if it's me thinking, I'm right, right here in this moment, I'm thinking my thoughts, right? Now, my thoughts can be dark, too, and we went through the whole mental mistake list. 
So I think Satan whispers things like, you're worthless. And we think, huh, I think that's right. I think I am worthless. I have then just taken his voice and incorporated it into my own thinking. It's become my own belief. Right? So there are going to be parts that are us. But to me, I, I actively experience it as like, you this, you that. And it's really interesting, too. I mean, he uses second person. You're worthless. You're a loser. You're never going to be good. I don't talk to myself as a second person. I think, man, I need to go to the grocery store with So it's, I mean, that's not like a all the time cut and dry way to tell, but he's, he speaks to us like he's speaking to us. And we hear it like that. Okay, Rob. The first thing I would also think through is like, the more we know God's character, uh, the more we understand how he operates, the more we understand, uh, like, both positively, too, a lot of times, what we're thinking, if that is upholding his character, right, then that's from him, if it's not, uh, that's us or yeah. the other thing. But um, I, I, I have been kind of processing this uh, lately, the past year, is a lot of times, you know, we have good ideas, <laughs> like we're kind of randomly creative, or mm-hmm. or we have just like, where did that thought come from? Or I'm talking to somebody, like, man, I'm way more eloquent than I normally am. Just the reverse that we don't give God, the Holy Spirit, specifically credit, mm-hmm. right, for for those things that we normally aren't. <laughs> like we know ourselves, we know mm-hmm. what we aren't, and so often we just kind of dismiss it as far as as far as like understanding God's activity in our life, in particular thought life. Yeah. Helping us. Right. In, in all kinds of situations mm-hmm. where he wants to bring the spirit there. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. We see that fruit, right? And we don't we don't recognize it for what it is, that he's being active in our lives too. Or the or that is our meditating on truth, right? That we, we see the bad train and I've shared with you several times that I, I meditate a lot on different parts of Psalm twenty three. Like when I'm anxious or fearful, right? I uh the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. When mm-hmm. the enemy is saying, you lack everything. You're no good. You're worthless. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing this. You know, he's like, no, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't lack yeah. anything. And there's lots That's the whole point, right? You shall know the truth, and truth will make you free. When you catch these lies, whether it's this voice that you're hearing that's leading you to feel condemned or confused or afraid, or they're your own mental mistakes that you're able to recognize the solution is truth. We call out the lie, and we replace it with truth. And we replace it with truth until it feels true. It won't feel true initially. That's what you have to understand. You can take all this away and start using it, and it's going to feel wrong. But we addressed that already. That All that means is your brain is rejecting the change that you're making. You keep doing it, it will accept it. It has to. Anything else? All right, guys, thanks for being here. I'll be packing up if you got any, um, any individual questions you want to ask me, you're welcome to come up. Then if we can you do that. get handouts or just for telling somebody later in the week about this, I'll, have, I'll print some more out later. There was this report. Are you going to sit down that recording? Sure. If it took. I'm going to sit like 40 people.